Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Kate Seek. Kate is the Senior Manager uh, in the Machine Assisted Cognition Program at Toyota Research Institute. She's previously at RAND and Red Associates and in some you know, those previous roles and some others held a sort of, um, you know, various titles of jobs, none of which are UX. So maybe, you know, we'll, we'll touch on that. Uh, so, Kate, would you mind telling everybody how you got interested in anthropology? Uh, sure. It was a bit of love at first sight, if I can be totally honest. Um, I will completely date myself here, but I am old enough to remember the original Live Aid concert. And um, remember thinking there has to be a better way that all of this, you know, to understand what's happening and to fix what's happening. And uh, went to college, started undergrad with the intention to dual major in chemistry, biochemistry and economics. The goal was to be running the World Bank by 25, um, which I know is super realistic, but I was 18. Um, and as part of our core curriculum, we were required to take a civilizations course. So I took African Civ and was um, honored and delighted to be uh, in the midst of some of the preeminent anthropologists of the day uh, and really instantly fell in love with the way that anthropology looked at the world. Uh, the idea being that People are pretty sensible individuals and things aren't random. And if you slow down and actually ask questions and pay attention, you can see why they do what they do. Uh, and you don't need, you know, crazy experiments and you don't need charts that actually they'll, they'll talk you through a lot of stuff. And when you triangulate data, uh, you can actually see how the world makes sense to them and in collaboration with them design policies, plans, and solutions that, that fit their lives. Um, and to me, it just seemed kind of the most sensible, reasonable human way to think about our lives and um, never look back. Did an undergrad in anthropology. I worked, um, I, I did my undergrad thesis on teenage, uh, with teenage oncology patients. So worked in a variety of hospital clinics um, and took two years out after that. Uh, went to grad school um, first at SOAS, again, kind of surrounded by some incredible, uh, incredible faculty who really pushed hard and pushed me to be uh, much more rigorous in, uh, in my thinking and social theory and absolutely loved it. And then went to Emory for graduate school. 
Um, it was still a relatively, relatively new program at the time. I think it was under 10 years old at the time. Um, but what I really loved about Emory was its four-field mandate, four-field approach. Um, as you could tell, my undergrad was in medanthro, but didn't have anyone on my committee who understood anything about oncology uh, and made some just sort of basic mistakes in just background sections uh, and really wanted to make sure that I didn't ever have those, those gaps in my, my knowledge, those gaps in my understanding. And for a field that purports to understand humanity really felt like evolution was important. You know, human biology was important. Uh, archaeology was important and um, loved not every minute of it because that would be a lie because it was graduate school, but loved a lot of it and particularly enjoyed working with really diverse faculty who, um, who challenge your brain from a lot of different directions. If you've listened to the podcast, you realize everybody really has an interesting story about how they came into anthropology, but I think you're the first who wanted to take over the World Bank by 25, so. <laughs> well, because most people are actually smarter than me and know that that's probably not a realistic goal. Um, I was very much the idealist and, you know, had wanted to dream big, think big, make a big difference. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, after you graduate grad school, you know, what was that like for you? So my dissertation research was on the U.S. foster care system um, and really looking at why kids get stuck in the system, why kids and families get stuck in the system. You know, how for 150 years, this is a system that hasn't worked, no matter what we seem to try, whether it's, you know, work closely with families or ignore the families, take the kids, the families are bad, right? Like for 150 years, we've toggled between these two different poles and the system never worked. Uh, so you can tell just from where that interest was, and obviously from my intro, that my passion was always much more um, probably applied of how do we do this. And I got to the end of graduate school um, and didn't really know how to take that and go somewhere else and do something else with it. Um, my dissertation chair was Brad Shore, and he had spent uh, a sabbatical with the Doblin Group, which uh, is kind of one of the early, early precursors of a lot of many of the companies we see now that are out there in, uh, in the world of applied anthropology. So I kind of knew there's things were out there, but wasn't, wasn't as clear on it at the time. Part of it was also, I had two kids under two. And so it was a little bit uh, busy with that. So for the better part then of eight years, I taught uh, and loved being uh, being faculty, loved working with students, but um, quite honestly, if you're not tenure-aligned faculty, it's a pretty brutal life of, you know, teaching four classes and making less than I made when I graduated college and, um, you know, no TA support for what you're doing, uh, really enjoyed it and taught a wide range of things, um, but it's a very unsustainable way to have a professional career. And at that, by 2010, we were in Minnesota uh, and kind of trying to make a path forward, which, which it's a smaller academic market. So finding tenure lines in academia, kind of as, you're, as you've noted, like the, the academic market sort of crashed for anthropology right around 2008 when, when the economies tanked. So there weren't really tenure line 
positions um, and uh, certainly not two in the same city. Uh, so that was, that was rough. Um, and I knew that I couldn't just couldn't keep doing the lecture route. It was, it was grueling. Um, so one of my students in office hours one day came into the, my office. She's like, I found this job. It's in marketing, but they're looking for an anthropologist. Uh, and she wasn't eligible to apply for it. So just for the record, I did not swipe a job from an undergrad. <laughs> they wanted somebody who had a graduate degree. Uh, and she just, and it, it kind of tickled my brain. I was like, wait, I know American culture. I have spent decades studying American culture. Um, and she's like, what if I had to, you know, sell for Target or something? I'm like, Target's actually kind of cool. We spent, we spent a lot of money at Target. <laughs> Maybe they could do it a little better. Like, it just struck me as something that might be an intriguing challenge. And uh, I was kind of fed up with, like I said, with what, the experience of being an, of, like, being an academic um, and put my hat in the ring and got the job, which was um, surprising and terrifying and amazing. And um, it was probably some of the best and hardest five years of my life working in that field. And, uh, you know, I finished classes, I think, on, what was it, the 14th of May and started, to, started my next job on the 17th of May. So it was like right back to back and um, loved it. It was, there were colleagues on my, my last day teaching who, you know, were really critical and said, oh, you sold out, you did all this, you know, you awful person. Um, and I understand some of that. Uh, I don't advocate for it and I don't support it. Uh, having now been out for more years than I was, or almost as many years as I was in. Um, but, but I also think that that attitude that working or applied anthropology uh, is somehow lesser than academic anthropology is, is seriously problematic and doesn't serve our students well. So I do go back often and do a lot of guest lectures on, like, let me tell you what my experiences have been. And that's where podcasts like yours have been so powerful and good, I think, for the field to help students start to wrap their head around what different career pathways could look like. So, yeah. So there, I started in marketing and sort of marketing consulting. Yeah. And so that's a great jumping off point. So, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, Ran, Red, you know, you've had a couple of nice names, you know, through the career. You've also gone through a few titles. So... And again, to sort of like the joke at the outset, not UX. So I say that again, because obviously right now UX is, you know, a lot of UX researchers have been laid off. Um, it's a horrible thing. Of course, we didn't, wouldn't wish that on anybody, especially when then like, you know, CEOs take massive raises. Uh, but it is still a very large and healthy field and still a very good employer. It's not like, you know, all researchers were laid off and it's the end of re UX research, right? It will continue to be a very good field, uh, even if right now, you know, it's a little bit of a dark period. But having said that, there's a lot of other roles out there from market research, right? You know, there, there could be all kinds of places anthropologists could find themselves. So could you maybe just share, you know, a little bit about like the different things you've touched and what you've seen and some other potential career paths? 
And more importantly, where I would love to see more anthropologists in the field. So I started in marketing in 2010. And at the time, there seemed to, there kind of right around there, there was a wave of anthropology that went through market research and consumer insights. Uh, and I think still some very good people, obviously, in the field. Grant McCracken was doing certainly a lot of his earlier stuff at that time. Um, and uh, what was what was really fun about it was the and a lot of people kind of worked in, you know, if you have a, a regional background in anthropology, as many of us do, you often work in like a, a marketing theme around that. Or if you had like a tech background, you might work in in product design or, or communications around tech. Um, because my background was what it was, which was relatively general and broad. And um, one of the things I had done in my academic career was teach methods classes, research methods classes. I ended up working broadly across the agency on a lot of different projects. Uh, so more in partnership closely with the strategy department and the strategy team uh, at the agency. Slowly grew more into um, really close collaborations with our creative teams. Uh, so didn't call it semiotics, but a lot of it was probably in that terrain of how do you visually think about or represent certain things. And then uh, my last, I think, almost two full years were pretty much just in business development. Um, part of what enabled that is, um, is having had this background in methods and having had a really um, robust social theory training. A lot of my efforts in marketing were trying to shortcut the research timeframe. Um, we would have projects where I would have uh, you know, two days to come up with something. We would have projects where we'd have two weeks to come up with, you know, the the core insight that's going to be, you know, to drive a, a business campaign of millions of dollars for some big company, which is not a lot. There were obviously a couple that were longer, but many of them were quite short. Um, and as robust as my background was, I don't know everything and couldn't know everything. And so a lot of my time was spent trying to understand as quickly as possible things that I didn't understand. Um, so how do I tap the power of what everybody else has written? How do I tap the power of um, quantitative data and come up with really different insights from that? Um, what can we see that's in the visual world? That's where I started partnering really closely with. Um, with our creative teams, Instagram was new. Facebook was still fairly wild west at that time. So there were a lot of interesting things that you could see happening in those spaces. Uh, so from that perspective, it was probably one of the biggest intellectual challenges I've ever had in terms of really trying to think critically when you know that there are jobs and big amounts of money on the line for some of our clients. How do you come up with something that helps them narrow a terrain? Uh, one of my favorite examples is that we were um, pitching a, a cosmetics brand. And literally, we had, I don't know, four hours to come up with a, a new concept. Uh, so I went and was like, why do people put makeup on their face? Like, why do people disguise their appearance? And started digging in there. And we ended up with you know, an annual review article on something that was like, here's the five reasons why people disguise themselves. 
uh, and started from that. And then all of a sudden, you know, started putting brands against the different approaches and realized, oh, there's this one that really aligns with who we are and had a really killer strategy in four hours because of a, a really nice and lucky annual review article. Uh, so how thinking through strategy as a framework, as a toolkit, uh, was where a lot of my, or sorry, thinking through theory as a framework or toolkit was where a lot of my time and attention went with that position. And I really loved it. What was hard about marketing communications uh, is that that you can see bigger business opportunities that were much harder to unpack uh, in those roles uh, because you're just really trying to to focus on kind of the final end product as opposed to, hey, if you wouldn't do this in your business, we wouldn't have to make this statement over here. Uh, And that's what really drew me into bigger issues of consulting and business intelligence. So that's where my role at Red uh, was really trying to understand, not just from a communications perspective, but really from a much broader and richer um, business strategy, product design, product development, um, product launch. Uh, so that's where that work went. And my role at Rand, um, while ostensibly it started on the research side of the house, what I really ended up spending the bulk of my time there doing was business intelligence. Um, so really thinking strategically about what's happening in the whole of the, the research field, um, and using systems thinking and uh, you know, kind of classic ethnography, like who's out, like who's out there as a competitor, and what's going on with data, and uh, what do our clients seem to actually be looking for? What's resonating with them? Where are they putting their time and attention? What are their, what are they trying to achieve? How do we understand broad political dynamics? Um, and really bringing all of the great and powerful systems thinking that is is inherent in anthropology and the kind of up and down between the minutia and the broader picture uh, to a role where we were actually able to do a lot of positive things and a lot of good change. Um, and I would, you know, that also included how do you think about risk analyses in corporate environments? Um, a lot of them use these very simple two by two of like, how fast will it happen? Or um, what's the potential like impact? And then like how fast will it happen? And I'm like, there's like eight other dimensions we should be looking at here beyond this. Um, or maybe it's how impact and you know our ability to contain it or something along those lines. But uh, there were many, many dimensions that were not included or and everything was seen as a one-off thing. And I was like, hey, if these two little things happen, this really big thing happens over here. And maybe we should pay attention to linkages and connections, stuff that wasn't typical in how people thought of risk analyses, but is is absolutely fundamental to the way that anthropologists think about networks and relationships and social dynamics and um, systems, systems effects. Uh, so to me, boy, would I love to see so many more anthropologists playing in uh, kind of the business intelligence, business strategy, risk analyses sort of terrain um, because we we often see things that are not in models. And it's that on the ground sort of awareness of a line that you need to follow that is honed through so much of our training that I think makes us particularly good at that. Uh, I remember reading 
um, Signal in the Noise, Nate Silver's book, and how there were so many subtle signs of the impending recession in 2008 that nobody really thought about because they weren't connecting dots and they weren't on, you know, like in the communities where these kinds of things happen. Um, and so to me, that's such uh, a strength of our discipline. And I wish, uh, wish more people were there. Now I work in tech, so it's not, it's not UX. It's more, um, I am really, I'm a senior manager for uh, a team, uh, uh, the Harmonious Communities Department, which is, honestly, I pinch myself. It is truly a dream job and I'm aware of it every day. We have been tasked with combining, you know, social sciences and behavioral sciences with machine learning and technology to help mitigate and, and resolve conflicts across the globe. And whether those are really big or, you know, interpersonal, that was the bandwidth we were given, you know, do something to make our world kinder uh, and more harmonious. And, um, you know, so now it's much more product development <laughs> that is, that defines my life. And I think that there are unique and powerful ways, again, that our ability to think about broad ranges of stakeholders to really hear and understand complexity from all kinds of different groups um, and to think about systems and processes. Again, those are areas where I think we tend to excel as a discipline. Um, and playing higher, sometimes, you know, playing at, the, playing at different parts of the chain, you know, from high-end business strategy to product to parts of product to communications. I think there's any number of places that, that we have a wealth of opportunities beyond UX. Again, fully agree UX is a great job. <laughs> not trying to dismiss it. It's just one I've actually never had. So I want to come back to the TRI role, but you said that you would like to see more people in like business intelligence and strategy. So how do you think individuals can make, you know, that leap from anthropology to get to those roles? You know, what do you think they need to do? That's a good question. Honestly, some of my career, I'm not even going to lie, has just been a lot of luck. Um, I got in that role because I had been trying to understand why it was hard for us to win. And so it was the kind of rabbit hole behavior that gets so many of us stuck in grad school anyway, uh, that, that proved so successful. Um, in terms of how to prepare in a thoughtful way for that role, as opposed to hoping that luck will come along, um, a lot of it is really understanding the what makes the stakeholder, you know, what makes your company executives, what are they trying to attend to, and where is it that your skill sets can complement that. So a lot of that is um, some basic business 101. I haven't done an MBA, but I spent enough time in different roles to be able to read financial spreadsheets and to be able to understand, you know, how money is moving in different organizations uh, or in different parts of organizations. Uh, I still wasn't perfect at it. And I'm sure if any of my colleagues from RAND hear this, they will happily tell you where I made some mistakes. But also being willing to work with them, being willing to learn, being willing to try and get better at it over time. Um, those were really important. A lot of our work, when we really kind of think about kind of the core foundations of a lot of what we study, has risk 
implied in it. Um, you know, we certainly have a really deep history of studying risk analyses, whether you go back to Evans Pritchard or rather even Mary Douglas, who's a little bit closer. Um, a lot of what we're always trying to understand is how are communities navigating in complex environments, right? And that's fundamentally risk analyses right there. If you can ladder onto that some basic business acumen that you can either get from LinkedIn or Coursera or choose your platform for learning the basics of, you know, business spreadsheets, um, you can take to those spreadsheets a much broader perspective on why the numbers are the way that they are. Uh, and encouraging students even, you know, for, fa for at a faculty level to, to think of areas where our where the general work of our discipline of toggling between the small and the big of working across groups of complex stakeholders where those are needed is I think another interesting way to to encourage people even in that in their studies to consider options like like these fields um Sorry, that's a long, long way to answer your question. Um, there are also obviously courses that people can do. I know that you have been such a force in advocating for all the UX training courses and bringing the, the UX community together around what counts as good work. Um, and we have, as a discipline, probably haven't done as much for thinking about all of these other broader spaces. I know when I started, there was a lot more in marketing and how to do marketing well as an anthropologist. Um, but beyond that business strategy, I don't know if we've done as much of that. So maybe it's a good opportunity space. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a lot of curiosity, a lot of humility, a lot of just learning. Um, but things that I think we tend to be good at and that tickle our, you know, generally tickle our brains as researchers. And so now back to TRI. So a few times now, you know, you mentioned BI, you mentioned quant, uh, you mentioned the word triangulation earlier. Obviously, you're in a sort of interdisciplinary team. So how do you, you know, in the sort of managerial role that you're in, try to really bring that all together and, you know, for the benefit of the product? That is such a great question. I think I, think I have always felt like everybody has I'm going to answer it in two ways. So there's first the people part of like, how do you build and think about a team? And then the second part of how do you get that team to like do something? Um, so the first part is I have been incredibly lucky to work with across my career, work with people who were so talented in their own disciplines, in their own domains, and have never really felt like the best person at any of it, you know, like I, I still don't know machine learning. I don't know how to write code. Um, when I was in marketing, I could barely draw, I could barely draw a paper bag, let alone draw my way out of a paper bag, right? I'm not, I'm not, you know, the, the most elegant writer. Uh, so there were a lot of ways in which I can see in other people where they're particularly good and they really shine in their own discipline. Um, what I was always really good at was being able to say, there's this weird space over here. And if the three of you play together, we can do something super cool and think about this problem in a different way and come at it from that community ground up, you know, pain point, let's go fix this. Uh, perspective. And, uh, and when you put people together and you can help them shine and help them work together and give them a really fun 
meaty problem that intrigues all of their brains, then they do a lot of really good things. And that's where most of my later career has has largely been, is trying to get, you know, people with wildly different skill sets to to tackle a problem from five different directions so we can do something fun. Um, so being able to take that then and actually now build an actual product. Um, do you know I was talking about curiosity and like always learning? Yeah. So this has been an always learning year for me. Uh, and it's been fun and hard and frustrating and a lot of like, great, we'll be done in March or we'll be done in September or like be done when we show it to you. Uh, and grateful that we have some flexible timelines at TRI uh, and grateful for a team that is really broad in its thinking. Um, where I am also increasingly playing a role is, is, all right, if here's our benchmark, like really let's, it's, it's all the same basic system stuff that gets you into risk analysis. Like if this is what we want to do, like what are all of the things that are coming back? And, you know, what's going to derail those and who's on vacation when? And, you know, it's like the, the basics of that versus what are the things that we haven't even thought about for when we take this out public and we're actually getting real people to play with this and what are they going to break and where are the, the things that could go wrong and um, what will they find funny and how can we make this something that they want to do that is engaging and empowering and exciting for them and not just like another stupid tech platform that somebody thought would do something good in the world. Um, so really having conversations early, having them often, um, and forcing ourselves to go play with stuff and see, do we, you know, like, if we don't like it, why on earth do we think anyone else would like it? Like, let's start just being real people in our own lives. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been kind of that toggle between really trying to understand each person's uniqueness and then what's the cool recipe we can make when we put certain people together. And, you know, that sort of builds on, I, I know, uh, an interest of yours in terms of developing the next generation. And so um, obviously, you know, leadership is a part of that, no matter really what generation they're of, I guess. But you know, what, it, what is it that you think almost really needs to be developed and what do you see lacking and like, you know, where do you see the opportunity almost for improvement in some sense? I'd really love to do something in the private sector and I have no idea how to do it. Um, to, you know, and it's funny, like when you look at the history of anthropology, we were, we were officially like the handmaiden of colonialism, right? Like we were right up there with the powers that be and have destroyed huge chunks of the world. And I'm not, you know, not making light of that. Let me be super clear around that. But our, our recognition of that and then our like, distaste for that in some ways. And, and I'm speaking broadly about anthropology. When you see that backlash happening in the 60s and 70s against really supporting political regimes, it's almost like anthropology took this major dive out of the, the power that we actually have and this toggle away into, into running from this. And I am also aware there have been people all along who have been doing this. So I want to not be dismissive. And, you know, I know that there have been people, uh, Laura Nader has done work for decades on, on some of this and continues to. And, and certainly there have always been people out and applied in the world. Um, but I think in general, we, we saw it as this very shameful part of our history. And so we just dropped it and ran rather than thinking about 
how could it be how could that same power be a force for good and how could we have toggled that to do um to do something different but equally uh significant um and when we teach ethnography these days i think that so many academics actually don't have a good sense of of how anthropology is applied um and so we miss opportunities to really talk deeply and richly about how could you know how could theory inform much of what we do or how do the methods that we end up developing in applied settings maybe help us in not you know in more traditional or classical academic work um, and how do the ethics issues that we navigate and negotiate and, you know, the kind of work we do uh, help the, di- the discipline kind of move and grow forward uh, in understanding, you know, whether it's critical theory or, you know, intersectionality or, you know, medical anthropology. Uh, all, of, you know, all of those terrains are things where we are probably more on the front lines of certain things and could actually give back and help inform. But when our departure from academia is greeted with sellout, it's kind of hard sometimes to want to build that bridge back. And I wish that, I know that there's the Anthro Career Readiness Network out of the AAA. I know there's the Society for Applied Anthropology. I know there's the National Association of Practicing Anthropologists. I know there's EPIC. I've touched all of them at different points in my career, uh, and yet still we are struggling to find and build a bridge back. And I don't know if there's a sense like we're waiting to be invited or if we just need to start inserting ourselves into, you know, welcoming them into our homes and into our fields uh, and building the bridge that way. Um, it uh, It is a fascinating and sad way that we have um, in many ways, sort of stepped down from our power. Even, even Paul Farmer, who is possibly one of the more famous anthropologists of the last couple of decades, didn't wasn't in anthropology. He didn't have a position in anthropology. He was in the med school um, for most of his academic career and couldn't get a position in the anthropology groups. Uh, and so, to me, that's where I am fully cognizant of the power to make really complicated and difficult mass, you know, decisions through our role. But I don't think we resolve that by running. I think we resolve that by opening the conversation, opening the field um, and bringing more people in and, and having more conversation, not less. And speaking of conversation, do you have anything coming up that you want to share or, you know, talk or whatever, or even just shine a light on something else you really like? Sure. The biggest thing that's uh, in my life at the moment is I am uh, grateful and lucky and honored to be part of EPIC's Equity Council. Uh, So this year, EPIC, uh, which many of you may know, is one of the the organizations for anthropologists practicing in industry, uh, was given some founding money to really build out an equity program and help uh, you know, as I said, like more conversation, more people, more voices into our own discipline and help us grow and be better um, and really be involved in that. Uh, so we were given a founding donation and uh, along with Shakima Jackson-Martinez and uh, along with Nicole Kerlach, we have been entrusted with shepherding the funds and developing the program. 
Um, and that has been to me probably one of the most rewarding uh, experiences. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And so if anybody wanted to hear more about that or get in touch with you, where would be a good place? You can always find me on LinkedIn. I am also available through Epic. Uh, if you want to find me there, I teach through Epic. Um, and uh, those are probably the easiest ways to find me. Um, I will be going to some conferences this year, probably the AAAs for sure, Epic. Uh, and so do, if you are around, ping me for those as well. I would, uh, would always be happy to chat. And I usually... It, if people ping me on LinkedIn, always happy to reach back out. So thank you. Well, Kate, it was a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time today. Oh, for sure. No worries. This has been wonderful, Matt. Thank you for making the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at mattarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.